were processing tens of thousands of payments with a team of like five people. And you'd look additional kind of FX companies who were doing, you know, a tenth of that number, but they had 10 times more people. You can't scale like that. And I think we quickly noticed that. Um, and I think it was, we set the foundations out early that we were going to scale our business through technology. And that was both from a you know, go-to-market point of view, we'd sell a, a piece of software, but also internally. Hello, and welcome to The Finterview, a show about the stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and builders shaping the future of our financial world through technology. We're going to keep finding inspiring stories to share with you, so make sure you've subscribed to the show to never miss an episode. Hello, welcome to The Finterview. My name is Alistair Clot, and I'm the co-founder of Integrated Finance. With me today is Richard Arundel. He is the co-founder and chief evangelist of Currency Cloud. Have I got that right, Rich? That's not bad, actually. Yeah. There we go. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. I've never actually heard it being referred to as a Finterview. That's a new one on me. So so we we um, just try and put Fin at the start of everything, and this stuck on the Finterview. So uh, there we go. It's actually a good segue into... Uh, fintech as a concept and it would be great to start um talking about what you did before currency cloud and then how currency cloud came to be in the initial phase so i did before currency cloud um we're going back a few years now i went to school and i um then went to university and then found myself working in um in real estate ring as a, an estate agent i really enjoyed it whereabouts I, I live kind of um, just outside London, so it's about thirty miles outside of London. Um, you know, as a as a twenty one year old, twenty two year old, um, showing kind of people around some very nice houses. I, I loved it. Prior to Currency Cloud, I worked at a company that is now um, XE dot com. Um, HiFX. Yeah, it was called HiFX. Yeah, HiFX. Um, for those people listening who don't know, they're a um, they were a um, one of the biggest independent kind of FX brokers in the UK, based out of Windsor, very successful company. They sold the business after I left uh, to Euronet, but became Mexi.com. Um, so my, I guess my experience was in was in FX, as in the deliverable FX market. So we were providing services to uh, businesses and individuals, um, and my focus actually was around partnerships um, on a cross-border team, but people who were effectively migrating to Australia, New Zealand. Canada um, and I worked with the partners that we worked with um, and they would pass us their customers for us to do the FX for um, and that's where did, your, did the estate agency help you were you working with estate agents as the partners there or um, I, it lawyers and... wasn't there was a there was a part of our business mainly uh, I never thought of it like that actually it was never meant to be a lead into this and I used my estate agent background to this but no we worked with a lot of overseas kind of real estate agents who would um mainly in europe you know the big craze back then this was kind of 2006 seven um and a load of people were kind of buying property in spain and buying property in portugal and and, and we you know hrfx had a, a, a big standing in that business where they would work with you know, hundreds of these and um, these companies who would refer them business and and I think the relevance there is because actually that informed our thinking and the idea behind what became currency cloud um so i i worked with um one of the founders of of 
um, or the founding members of HFX was a chap called Steve Lemon, who was a fellow co-founder at Currency Cloud, and he kind of dragged me out of there. At that point, he wasn't working there. He had a recruitment business, um, and he had this idea, effectively, which was a, effectively a white-labeled FX platform, whereby rather than the estate agents or the, the travel agents kind of sending you their customers, they're their customers. So why couldn't you have a platform that you could give them to service their own business? So it's, I guess it's, yeah. it, we we always you know like to elevate ourselves and say we're visionaries, but it's the embedded finance model back then for a, a certain part of the business. And he'd had a chance meeting with effectively our, our technical founder um, who had a regulated business, had um, a the the beginnings of a kind of a platform, um, and so that's when that initial team kind of came together, and this was the end of 2008, early 2009. So basically, the the back end of the last the financial crisis. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good time to be starting a business. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. I mean, listen. But um, I was 27, 28. Um, at that point, wasn't married, didn't have any kids, had a small mortgage I shared with a friend of mine. So, you know, from a liability point of view, it was, it was quite a good time for me to um, to think about doing this. And as I said, Steve approached me with, with the idea. And I had blind optimism and, and went along with it. And I said, there were six, seven of us kind of in the early days. Um, and an idea turned out to what we, we were called something different back then. We became Currents Cloud in 2012 um, when we kind of brought the grown-ups in and it came with our, um, our CEO. Um, we, we raised some money. Um, but yeah, so the early days to sum it up, we, I worked for HFX, gave me a good grounding in FX and, and payments. Um, we had this idea of actually, you know, this could be done slightly better and surely the people who own the customers and know about the customers are the best people to service them. And if we could give them the technology and the platform and the, and the, and the wares to do that, um, then ultimately the, the end user, and it's always about the end user, they're, they're going to have a better experience. You touched on it slightly about the white label platform, but kind of my my view of Currency Cloud has always been that they were kind of one of the first um, financial firms in the cross-border payment space to really like put technology at the centre of everything they were doing. Yeah, so if, if you go back to 2008, 2009, this is when the first iPad kind of came out. So it's that far ago. And when you're making, when you were making payments, you had probably three or four different bank dongles on your desk, depending on if you're an individual or a, or, or a business. And I think we, and this, and this is where our kind of technical founder had the expertise in terms of that technology and how we, how we saw that actually this is a technology business or that, that it's got to be underpinned by, by technology. So whilst I guess APIs are now table stakes for, for most people in this space, they weren't back then. So okay. we like we you know this wasn't pioneering, but I think what we and when you mentioned fintech and you put fin in front of everything, fintech was referred to as new finance back then. Um, so fintech wasn't necessarily a thing; it was maybe something that you thought you were cool and talked about in the in, in the bars. Um, so I guess yeah, we 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 looked at it and said, listen, you've got there's got to be a good way to use technology, and especially if you think about where currency clouds sit, and we are as as you said it yourself, we, we're an enabler. You know, we are the kind of the, the dumb pipes when it comes to sending money. We're not the ones who the end customer interacts with. That's our customers. So we're providing them. And the, and the only way to really do that is through technology. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we, we looked at 
that and said that that's the gap in the market. There's got to be a, a better way for the customer to, 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 to access this, but for the people and the businesses, you know, the banks, the FX brokers, the fintechs who are delivering that service, they're the customer experts. They just want to be able to access the technology to be able to, to make that journey happen. It's quite, um, it's quite a shift, not only from, uh, the technological point of view, but also from the sales and marketing point of view going from, you know, let's say the traditional way that FX was sold, i.e. via the phone and, and marketing to, to more towards that kind of soft sell infrastructure play. I wonder what the challenges were, um, when you were first kind of moving towards this model and, and trying to, cause because you guys were the first, you almost kind of almost educate the customer to, to your viewpoint slightly. And like, this is the way this is going. You should be doing it this way. Yeah. And I think listen, we also, there's always luck involved in kind of successful startups and successful businesses. And I think at that time, you know, the similar amount of time wise, we're getting started, you know, or transfer mm -hmm. revolute came along not too long ago. The, the, the Asimos of the world were kind of getting started. So it was, I think we had a good, I guess um, alumni of of people who, and some of which have gone on to do you know amazing things and really transform the industry. Um, but it was a very different sell, and and, and Steve especially, because I'll because um, he's not on this call, I can kind of poke him. Um, yeah, he was he was a traditional sales guy, right? He's old FX. He is. I I I'd been selling through partners, I guess. So I guess I had a slightly different table. But yeah, it was, it was a very different sell, and I think. Both of us didn't want to go into that direct sales world. We'd done that. Um, and credit to the people who can do that for years and years and years and years, um, especially in FX, because it's a grind. Yeah. 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 Um, and so it, it wasn't necessarily looking for the easy way out, but actually a, a, a solution sell to say, actually, let's say you, Alistair, you've got a business, you've got a fintech business. I'll just sell to you. So it's that one to many. Um, and it's a great challenge, but it is. It's educating educating customers, and there's a few things around. It's not just the technology. So I think people were um, were excited actually that they could access something through a really simple, easy to use API stack. But some of the bits and pieces, you know, it's educating people on. There's just a better way to do this, and we also, I think, we one thing I think we did pioneer was um, transparency when it comes to FX. That was a big thing for us, and I think it's now carried on through the industry. And our, our issue was, um, you know, certainly an, an end consumer, be it a business or a, or a retail um, customer, should know what they're paying. And someone's going to make some money along the way. Of course they are. Um, but I think we're okay with that, right? So they know they're buying a service from someone. It's just the, and I think now the regulators have, have, have looked at this across, especially in, in, in the UK, and are really pushing for kind of transparency across the market. But we just decided to make our, I guess our um, all our costs very transparent to the customer. So this is what we buy it for, and this is what we sell it to you. And I think when you start to do that and educate the customer, um, you know, because of where we sat, and not all of our customers passed that transparency on. That was up to them. All they liked from us, they were saying, "Okay, brilliant. I understand now my cost, and actually, I have the ability and the option to pass this on to my my customer." So it was, yeah, it was a an education, I think, for everybody. Was that? Um going back to the transparency thing was that kind of customer led because you were moving to infrastructure um and away from the customer directly was it something that was demanded by those um customers or was it something that you know the team came up with as a as an idea can you remember 
so prior to the platform business, we did have to roll our sleeves up and and try and sell direct to market effectively to, to keep the lights up, right? To to pay the bill. Um, so we had a brand that was that was focused on the market, and I think we we looked at it as a um, as a differentiator. Let's say who were we up against and up against some of the traditional FX companies that effectively would well, eventually would become our clients and all of them, but we were selling against them and a lot of the time they would sell on service and they would sell on kind of price in terms of, you know, of course, and you know, I'll be the best price you're getting. Um, but what they didn't sell is, um, is transparency. And our uh-huh. was, why don't we just, why don't we look at it like that? Isn't it a much easier conversation to say, I don't know if this is going to be the best price, but I'm going to give you the most educated or the, the most amount of education to be able to make that informed decision. So, I'm not going to, yeah, the, the classic reel you in with really, really close pricing. And when you're not looking, just widen the, the pricing out. And I think we fundamentally, all of us believe that that wasn't the right way to do business. Um, and it's just the, how the FX markets in the UK was set up allowed you to be, um, to behave like that. So, so I'd, whether it's a customer thing, I think it was probably, I think we took that decision and that was validated by the customers that we had at the time. So this is a yeah. way of doing things. At what point um, after that you launched the platform business did you think, hang on, you know we're really onto something here. People love this product, uh, and we can really see this like a path to maybe not Visa, but you know path path to scale. Um, I think we believed, and as I said, we were quite lucky in terms of the the new finance became fintech and became a big thing. Because we were one of the kind of the the early people in that space, we we realised that we we got in at the right time. It was the first few customers that we had. Um, I think helped validate that because we were one of the only people doing it at that stage in terms of that infrastructure provider. Um, and then I, I think there's multiple validation points. A big one was was twenty twelve when we had our Series A and we brought in Mike, the CEO, um, because having someone like that to come and validate it, say, okay, so you know, especially Steve and I at the point, you know, a couple of kids and he's like, brilliant, there's something here. Now I just need to come in and be the grown up and put a, you know, a team around it and actually grow it. So I think that validation from someone who's who's you know, been in the industry and seen things was was great for us. But before that, you know, signing up our few our first few customers and the feedback they gave us. A the a the concept, but B the fact that actually the APIs were pretty good, and that was interesting. So, you know, technical people coming to us and said, "These are easy." You know, this is and you know, finally someone's got something that's really easy to to code to. So, and you know, this is obviously the um, the gap that you guys look at as well. You know, it should just be simple. To, and now, obviously, that there's a different challenge in terms of everything's now via APIs with how you connect the rope and the like way. Um, yeah, so I think multiple validation points. The first few customers that we got, the feedback from them, um, the industry itself starting to gather pace. That actually, and if if you think about going back to the, our purpose and why we set the business up, we talk about it in different ways. But it's I like to talk about it actually as kind of leveling the playing field so everybody has access to fair and transparent pricing for FX. And you know whether that's a a big bank who's got their own challenges into that's like you know turning the oil tanker. Or whether this is a kind of fast-moving fintech who maybe isn't from the payments world, but really understands customers. Um, so yeah, so multiple validation points. I don't, I don't actually know at what point we kind of sat there and go, yeah, we're, 
we've really got something here. Um, I think again, we were just heads down in the weeds. Yeah. Trying to build a business, trying to stay afloat, you know, as a, as a relatively, we didn't, we didn't raise a huge amount of money at the beginning. So, you know, this is like, it was, it was a challenge, but it was fun. How much do you think kind of the wind was blowing in your favor from the big four kind of big four banks? I mean, being less comfortable servicing MSBs, or do you think it played no part? Yeah, especially in the UK. And again, the the business we have, whilst we like to think of ourselves as a technology platform or a payments and an FX company, we're in the business of compliance. <laughs> um, and we have a relatively, in the eyes of some of the banking providers, a relatively high risk business because they refer to as layered and you know, we're not ultimately dealing with the incaster ourselves and there's a, there's another link in that chain. So we need to ensure that actually our, our compliance processes and policies and, and, and technology is better than anybody. Now we had a really, and, and we're, we're really thankful and we're really lucky to have, have had some um, very supportive banking partners along the way. Um, the main one of which is, is Barclays. And I think the, the history we had with, because Barclays were a big provider for HRFX and our original CFO um, knew them and he helped bring them in. So I think, you know, there, there was a period and then Barclays, like a lot of banks were kind of looking at the MSB market and saying, this is quite high risk. And they were, they were de-risking their portfolio and getting rid of the ones that, um, that didn't have the appropriate compliance controls. So I think we were very early that actually we need to make sure that we are shit hot at compliance (laughs) because we are a, we're dealing with people's money. Right. And that the end uses the money, but ultimately, because we don't have visibility, as in they're not our, necessarily our customer, we need to make sure that you know, we're doing our due diligence and passing all this stuff upstream to you know, the regulators. And we're regulated by the banks ultimately in this industry that they have, that they can do their, you know, their, their due diligence and audits on on what they're seeing because um, it's such an important part of what we do. And I, I do, I, I talk a lot about this actually and how important compliance is. Um, because it's keeping people's money safe out of the hands of bad guys, present, you know, preventing anti-terrorist financing and money laundering, etc. Um, and and actually, it became a it became a bit of a USP for us and how we how we would sell. You know, we've got the technology and we've got good access to to FX rates and payments, etc. But actually, it's the compliance side of things. Yeah, and I think that's a big challenge actually. If you look at the world of embedded finance and and how that's getting going, that's always going to be a challenge because actually, you want. You want to be able to offer a product for your customers, but it's heavily regulated and you're not necessarily set up to do that. You don't really understand it. I think there's an education gap, but what do I need to know from, from you, Alistair, about you? And you know, Is it okay if you just tell me your name and I believe you, or do I need to have you know your inside neck measurement and you need to approve all that stuff? Um, but no, it's, and, and there's loads of space. And, this, and what we've seen over the last few years, the emergence of some really exciting kind of reg tech companies. Um, and we had some good partnerships in the early days as well. Um, and again, similar to us, this, you know, people seeing a gap, how you use technology to solve a gnarly challenge of, of compliance. But yeah, it's a huge part of what we do. Um, and as I said, we're, we were lucky enough to be able to sit in front of some banking partners, you know, Barbies included, and say, A, we've got the, or some of us had the reputation from our HIFX days, especially the CFO, Steve, et cetera. So you, you built up that credibility. But it's one thing being, you know, a nice person, but actually you've got to be able to prove it and stand there and say, you know, we, we can prove this through hero occupiers versus hero controls. 
you know, sometimes it was frustrating because you want to go fast. You want to like onboard as many people as you can and sign up as many customers as you can. Some of which had you know, very interesting business models and, <clears throat> and and business plans, but we we had to say no to quite a few people if they just didn't have the the compliance processes. So, and the same for industries, right? So there's some really in, in, you know exciting industries, but um, some of them are just too high risk. You, you kind of touched on compliance. Which, uh, yeah, was one of my later questions. It's really good that you, you picked it up. The transition to towards more um, kind of technology-led platform for delivering financial services, kind of in theory and in practice, is is fantastic and is definitely will continue to be the direction of travel. But it brings with it its own set of challenges, right? So technology has the uh, the great great aspect of of going wrong quite often, like uh, APIs failing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm just wondering, like with uh, with compliance and, and the platform, what were the key kind of challenges as you scaled the business that you kind of ran into? Um, specifically, I guess, as you started to serve larger, more demanding customers who probably needed 99.9% uptime on the platform, um, where previously you'd, you'd never been asked about it before. And a, a new challenge now being in the kind of visa environment, um, is they have an even higher demand, rightly so, you know, from, from enterprise rate customers. I think from the scaling point of view, and, and as I said, you know, I think from a kind of organizational perspective and how we set up our business in the first place, it was, you know, less manpower and more technology. So even through the compliance processes, we didn't hire 50 people to sit in our transactional monitoring teams. We invested the resource into the, the 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 technology that could go and do that job for them, and of course we had the people to back that up. And I think across the business, that investment in technology, both for external but importantly for internal um, reasons, helped us scale. And great example of that for me was our operations team, our payments operations team. And um, I can't remember the exact stats, but you know, we were processing tens of thousands of payments with a team of like five people. And you'd have wow. additional kind of FX companies who were doing, you know, a tenth of that number, but they had ten times more people. You can't scale like that, and I think we quickly noticed that. Um, and I think it was we set the foundations out early that we were going to scale our business through technology, and that was both from a you know, go-to-market point of view, and we'd sell a, a piece of software, but also internally. And of course, we can do things better. Like you look back in hindsight, and said actually, you know. Maybe we should have rewritten the platform because in the early days it was riddled on a bit of kind of spaghetti code that we eventually gave us a little bit of technical debt um, that did inhibit inhibit our growth as we scaled. But you know that was a I guess a victim of our success that we we were scaling quickly. And it's a business decision. You know, do I go and invest in and in, in go to market resources, salespeople to go and continue our growth, or do I kind of hit pause and maybe rewire the whole platform? We chose kind of growth and try and do the rewire on on the side um, like, like a lot of people do um but i said you said a challenge is coming in and this isn't just a um this isn't just a visa thing but i think as we get bigger and as we go into more enterprise grade customers who look at us and and you're right you know you said this it's that their expectations of kind of five nine uptime and to stand in front of a big kind of global tier one bank or even you know a big fintech and have to prove this you know they'll do pen testing on your platform and um 
this and and then it's not just I think the the platform availability. I think it's all your systems and processes, and they'll 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 really inspect it closer, which is great actually. It's good for us because we need those people to come and help us get better. Um, but luckily, I think we had the foundation in the early days, and if my technology team kind of and maybe some of my um, some of my peers I used to work with kind of listen to this, they'll probably laugh because sometimes you don't feel it's like that. It is yeah, you're putting out fires. Um, but I think that's the beauty and that's the fun of um, of startups and what attracts some people to it. Some people hate that world, but some people actually that fire in the our operations team is whilst they were really skinny. Um, they had some late nights when things didn't go wrong, when you know maybe the t- the platform did fall down and they had to do the the manual work of fifty people when there was only two of them. Um, but they're just the startup stories, I guess. Interested to kind of dig into that slightly more around um, using technology to kind of successfully scale the business. How did you approach, given that you had a technical team as well, the what do we build ourselves and what do we kind of source from best in class providers out in the market? Because that can be quite challenging, especially at the start. You know, we've got 10 developers, we can build everything. Yeah. Um, and actually get sidetracked in your core mission, right? Um, so just interested to hear about how you kind of approach that as uh, over time, I guess. I don't know what the last count is, but we have a lot of partners and suppliers in this. Um, and I think it's much like our pitch to people, actually, because actually a lot of the time our pitch is a buy or build decision by the customers that we're going out to. And we we got quite good at saying, actually, it should be a buy rather than a build because we're the experts here. So I think the decision really is, could we build something that is better than something that's available on the market? And actually, you know, and compliance is a good example. Um, companies like Apply Advantage, big shout out to Charlie and his team. Um, yeah, they've been also an investor in integrated finance as well. Oh, so, really, I, <laughs> I, so um, I mean, he's a genius, but they've built a really, really good product for the compliance world. And it just made sense to say, well, actually, why why would we go and build something ourselves on this where there is something out there that does this job really, really well? Yeah. Um, I think so. That's the decision. I think you just wear it up, and you've also got to wear it up in terms of the time taken to to, to build it yourself, the resources that you need to dedicate to that build, versus actually, could we be building something for the customers and just go and buy the shelf? Uh, and yeah, so there's an evaluation that happens, and I think that. The, the smart people in the business go and do that evaluation and come back to the table and say, listen, we've got a decision here. Some stuff we, we want to own ourselves, but actually in this space, and you're the you're the people to talk to about this, um, but there's there's so many good suppliers. And that's seen the rise of these kind of as a service, you know, the bank as a service type model. And I think, I guess, compliance would always be like compliance as a service. Um, there's that type of model, and you, there's a reason why there's a, you know, a lot of people around trying to do it. Um, but yeah, so we have, we have plenty of partners, plenty of people that do things amazingly. That's just an easy decision for us to say, we need this. We're going to go and buy it from someone. We're going to focus our resource on building customer facing, um, products. Looking back to, um, and you touched on this slightly, um, your role at the beginning to your role as chief evangelist now would love to kind of talk about how how it's changed over time i know you went to north america for for a wee bit as well um it'd be great to kind of walk through your journey through the business as well is there anyone else actually other than um you've mentioned steve but is anyone from the 
initial core founding team still with you as well? I am the last. Actually, <laughs> I think it was Steve and last I. Mohican. Yeah, Steve and I. Um, so Steve left actually shortly after the visa acquisition. Um, so no, it's just me. So early days, you, know, you wear all kinds of hats, I think, in a startup, especially like kind of six of you. So I was doing kind of sales, a bit of operations. Um, and I was never allowed to touch anything around um, finance or um, compliance. <laughs> or compliance, and I I couldn't code for the the life of it. So it was it was mainly sales focused. And I think Steve and I quickly realised where our expertise lied. Or, or lay. So he was very much a new business um, focused salesperson, and I moved into the um, looking after our customers. So for the first, and that, that lasted for a long time. And he held a role of, um, in fact, they had a new business. I held the role of head of customers and, and customer service. Um, and we did that for a long time. I think I, I actually did that until 2017. And 2017 was when I moved to North America. The opportunity came up to go and lead our and, and build our team out there. So I took on a role, which was um, heavily sales focused, but as general management um, of, of that office and building up a team. And we we had six or seven people when I when I moved over there, and about thirty odd when I moved back. Um, I did that for three years. Yeah, three years. Um, COVID happened. I was living in in New York um, in a two bedroom apartment with three kids. So when COVID wow. happened, and when COVID happened and it was locked down, um, that was that was fun. So we moved back end of twenty twenty, and in that move back, it was kind of a conversation around ritual. What are you going to do? Because you can't be a North American GM from your you know, from from the UK. Um, and it was a really good conversation. You know, I I thank Mike, our CEO, for um for giving, the, giving me the opportunity to do what I do now, which is a role of chief evangelist, which is a Silicon Valley kind of title. Um, and it carries a few things. And it was my, I guess, my experience and expertise in, in customers. And um, also my, one of the things that really interests me and probably is why I'm still here and been here so long is, is our people. Because as of currency, that has nothing to do with me and Steve. Um, and it's all to do with the people that we've, we've worked with they're the smart ones we had an idea 15 years ago that turned out was was exciting and we had the tailwinds of of, of the industry but the people are and I, I say this quite a lot but maybe not enough but they're what make this place special um and i think what have led to our success and so i, I was given the opportunity to actually do a lot of the evangelist evangelism i do is actually internal so there's a bunch of um i do a bunch of kind of training around um, and organizational health and ways of working and how we work together. And that was mainly centered around the, the go-to-market team. Um, so it's how they work, you know, functionally, but cross-functionally mainly because they have functional leaders. Um, but then also out in the market kind of talking about what, what the Transit Cloud does. Um, and that role has carried on with the acquisition. Um, and a market-facing, but actually I think one of the challenges, but exciting challenges that we have is is educating, you know, a thirty thousand strong organisation of Visa about what Currency Cloud does and where we sit in that. So, and making sure that um, the the team that we have built here understand that as well, because I think it's super important. You go into 
um, a company like Visa, that you are just as motivated and excited as you were when you were working for a, you know, kind of agile fintech. And it's been fantastic because um, it's been so supportive and there's, you know, Visa have a, a shared vision and purpose about what we're trying to do. So that, that was you know, a big reason behind the acquisition as well. Um, but I think for a lot of people here, they, we, what we're trying to do is make payments, you know, cross-border payments easier for people. That's exactly what we used to do. I view my role as, yes, industry-facing, but just as much internal-facing, trying to um, make sure that people are um, motivated, inspired, understand what we're doing. I think that's a big part that people don't focus on enough is understanding kind of what we do and, and people's role in that. Um, and it's it's a challenge. It's easy to do with 10 people in a room in a startup. I think you all know, but I think when you've got yeah, yeah. 600 people, um, it sometimes gets forgotten. It's inter- interesting the couple of the points you made about, um, you didn't like say it directly, but, I, but what I inferred was that there's still a lot of trust required Um even if you are an API first technology led business, if you're dealing with people's money, you know, it's, it's human to human trust that needs to be built up quite a lot of the time to actually facilitate, you know, the technology working. Um, and that as an evangelist, you're kind of externally and internally, um, building trust, um, you know, with partners, with banks, with customers, et cetera, but also across the organization so that they get, they're trusted by customers as well. It's almost like a self-reinforcing thing. Yeah, it is. and I think this goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the, the compliance and, and and the technology, and, and it takes a while to build up that trust, um, and you've got to work at it. And as I said, we were, we were we got I, I do put a little bit down to luck um, that we had some good initial customers that helped validate that, and we became a I guess a trusted uh, a trusted source within the industry. But also, I think we're quite proud of our role as and it's a business book saying, but this kind of trusted advisor, um, because whilst we're not market facing ourselves, we understand through our partners and our customers, we understand what customers want and how they act. So actually people come to us, um, and they might not be experts in cross-border payments and collections, but they kind of want to understand from us how it all works. Um, great. So you know, one of our first conversations around kind of direct to market sales or consultative led sales and it's very much that kind of consulting process um and yeah it's a huge thing it's a huge part of what we do and then there's another aspect of trust which um which i talk a lot about um which is the trust of of team members right so as you work together in teams i do a lot of work around um uh, around that and shout out to our um team there's a couple of the table group who we used um I always like to reference them because they're good guys and they kind of taught us how to behave effectively and how to build a healthy organization. And luckily that's something that the Visa are really interested in as well around our view on the world and, and how we've built up the teams. Final question then. You've gone from startup to scale up to acquisition Visa. So interested to hear what the next five years for Currency Cloud looks like given the the, the new owner and their global network already so back to what i said that the the beauty of of the visa acquisition and visa as our acquirer is our purposes and our kind of missions align very closely and visa talk about their purpose in terms of 
uplifting everyone everywhere by being the best way to pay and be paid. We had, an, and we've now aligned to that because it actually it says what we did, but better. We talked about reimagining the way that money flows to create a better tomorrow for all, but it's the saying the same thing. Um, so when I look at what the future holds, we're doing more of the same, but better. And we, you know, we, and to your trust point, you no, know, we are now part of one of the most trusted brands in the world who have an unbelievable network, an unbelievable um, kind of brand, but unbelievable, um, unbelievable kind of technology and scalability. So it allows us to carry on with what we set out to do in the first place. So it's, it's cliche and it's a bit cheesy, but when people talk about kind of the exit, it was just a door into a bigger room for us, actually. Um, at Visa, and we, we're part of a division of Visa, which they refer to internally as kind of new flows, which is kind of their um, their way of looking at kind of non-traditional card-based flow. Because Visa, some people know Visa is just a card network, but actually what they're trying to do is much bigger than that. It's a network of networks, and, and, and we fit nicely into that kind of narrative around how we can keep delivering products or services to the companies that are kind of shaping the future when it comes to cross-border payments. You know, they've got obviously got a big standing in, 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 in banks, but also in kind of a lot of their kind of large fintech customers as well. Uh, and it's just really exciting because it allows us to do it on this kind of huge global scale with access to um, all kinds of kind of new and wonderful customers and big customers that are people who are really kind of changing the world. Um, and again, you go, whilst we don't go to the end customer itself, you've always got to think about that end customer and just, again, the, the best way to pay and be paid for all types of people. Um, I think it's really exciting. Um, and my role as chief evangelist is to make sure people understand how exciting it really is. Wow, what a story. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. With so much innovation at your fingertips, you can build unique banking experiences in weeks, not months. Visit integrated.finance to find out how you can bring your fintech idea to life fast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next amazing episode. Take care.